0: You can't create health by avoiding disease. It's not going to happen. Health does not exist on a linear line. It's this oscillating movement from left to right and up and down all the time, every nanosecond of your existence. You cannot get something. Every single thing that exists outside in the universe exists inside of us. And we perceptually have the opportunity to switch it on or switch it off. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison.
1: Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. So excited this week to share with you one of the most incredible souls, someone who's had a huge impact on my life, Dr. Sarah Farrant. She has a unique understanding about health, and this woman is changing lives globally. She's the co founder of Vital Wellbeing, which is a company providing vital tools for generational change in health globally. Since the 90s, Dr. Sarah and her husband, Dr. Randall, have been global mentors to thousands of individuals, families, health professionals, celebrities, and sporting personalities. These two have facilitated and inspired people to live a vitalistic life. In the early 2000s, Dr. Sarah coined the term health expression, which today is used around the world by health professionals, myself included, health enthusiasts, individuals, and families. In 2010, she organized the world's health information into bite-sized pieces so people could understand it, identifying three distinct health approaches, which we talk about in today's podcast. She has an extensive education in teaching psychology and general science, in addition to her doctor of chiropractic from Palmer College Davenport in Iowa. Dr. Sarah has emerged as one of the foremost thought leaders in vitalistic health. She has authored books, ebooks, reports, articles, and been interviewed many times on radio, television, podcasts, and numerous print media. This beautiful soul is the author of two award winning books, The Vital Truth and The Health Illusion. She's also won numerous awards, including The Most Influential Chiropractors 40 Years and Under. She has on number one uh, in the book, Thank God, uh, which is incredible stories of inspiration for every situation. And she's also a Global Impact Award finalist in 2016 for Women in Leadership. But first and foremost, you will hear the soul speak about, regardless of all those accolades, she is first and foremost a mother and wife. She has three beautiful children, all home-birth, non-medicated and home-educated. And these guys have a beautiful practice with her husband, Dr. Randall Farrant, uh, between Waiheke Island and in the Waikato in New Zealand. I cannot wait for you to hear this beautiful podcast. She is a very big thought leader. She is an absolute global vitalist health educator. And I just love her as a woman, a friend, and an incredible, amazing doctor of chiropractic. Cannot wait for you to hear this week's podcast. If you've got any beautiful comments, feedback, or thoughts, please head on over to my Instagram page, Kim Morrison and the number 28, or you can head on over to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training, or you can go on over to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Please share these beautiful podcasts. We appreciate your five-star rating. And I also want to give thanks to the sponsor of the show, The Amazing 28 Essentials. Thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. You may want a pen and paper for this week's podcast or else just listen to it with an open heart, open mind, and trust that your unconscious mind is absolutely absorbing every single piece of amazing advice, thoughts, and insights effortlessly and easily. Enjoy today's show and thank you so much for being a part of the self-love podcast. Take care, be kind. You know very well that one of my favorite things each week is to bring to you extraordinary humans, people that I adore, look up to, revere, and hold in high esteem. And this week's guest is no different. Welcome to the show, beautiful Dr. Sarah Farrant.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Kim. It's an honor to be able to share with you and your your audience. So thank you.
1: Well, this audience is going to love you. I would love it if you could perhaps share with us, you are a chiropractic doctor, but you're way more than that. There is so much to you. You're an author. You have incredible uh, insights into the way that you feel the world ticks. But before we get into all of that, perhaps you could give us a little background, where you're from, what got you into this type of work, and who are you? If I was to ask you, who's Dr. Sarah Farron, what would you say? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, interestingly, you know, thank you so much for that um, uh, introduction and, and saying that I am a chiropractor. I think the first thing that always runs off my, the top of my head when someone says, who are you, it's first and foremost, I'm a mum. And uh, that kind of infiltrates through everything in my life because I would drop everything to make sure that my kids were okay or they were being guided in the right direction or um, I needed to stop and have a hug Um, so my education I guess is kind of ancillary to me being a mum and it started I I guess if I go back right to the very beginning Kim it started in 1972 actually and I was at the age of five and um, my mum and dad had bought a tv and it was a black and white tv right and 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 we thought that we were rich in a house that had this tv anyway my um my parents were making dinner one night and there was a late breaking news report that came across the TV. So we all stopped what we were doing and we came and we sat on the couch and we watched this guy do a press release and the, the, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a TV interview. And it was a brain surgeon describing the surgery that he had just performed, first of its kind. And I sat there as this young child just going, oh my gosh, imagine being able to cut someone open, look inside the human body and sew them back up and have them alive the next day and we got off the couch that that night and I kind of announced to my my parents that you know I was going to be a doctor and change people's lives and and specifically I wanted to be a brain surgeon and then when I started at school it was it was pretty clear that that was not going to be my path because I was kind of described as dumb and the dunce and um Uh, You know, I wasn't very good at English, but I used to go to this lady called Miss Claire who had a little brown door on the other side of the oval, and I used to walk to her door there and back pretty much every day of my school life, so around 12 years. And every time my left foot, because I'm left-handed, touched the grass as I was walking across the oval to her door, I would say to myself, I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. So I was affirming to the universe and affirming to myself that that's what I was going to do. But when I graduated from school, my other vision that also was created in 1972, when when I was watching the Olympic Games in Moscow, and all of these amazing athletes were coming out, and I said to myself then that I want to be an athlete wearing the green and gold because I'm Australian, and representing my country in something. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know what sport, but that's what I wanted to do. And when I left school. I uh, was already uh, rowing and I was rowing for, for my school, and then I was rowing for club, club rowing. And then I got a tap on the shoulder um, one year by uh, Simon Gillett, actually, who was an Australian selector, who rang me and said, um, We're selecting you for the Australian rowing team. And I was due, that was a Thursday, and I was due to be at the Australian Institute of Sport on that Sunday. And so once I finished from Rowing the same day, Kim, that I finished rowing or retired from rowing, I got a letter in the mail at the Australian Institute of Sport offering me a position in um, physical education, and it was at the Australian College of Physical Education, which was a college that was set up for elite athletes around the country who were very invested in their training, but they could also get an education. So I moved to Sydney and was training. Um, I wasn't training anymore, but I was studying physical education and graduated with. Ah, uh, second in my year, which was surprising to me, but it also proves that when you love something and doing what you love, then it's really easy to to study. And when I had um, finished physical education, I then found myself training um, athletes once I once I kind of uh, graduated from school, so uh, from college. And I was training like the world aerobics champions and national basketball players and Australian touch football players. And ironically, I found myself back at the Australian Institute of Sport lecturing on talent identification. And it wasn't until I was training these athletes that I thought, well, something's really missing with these athletes. They're not not able to visualise. And so I looked at psychology and it's when sports psychology was becoming kind of quite prominent, I'm now going back into the early 90s. And so I enrolled in psychology or I applied for psychology. I got in and then I started studying um, that and continued to work with the athletes. And then once I was, when I was studying psychology and working at the same time, that's when chiropractic came into my life. And I had um, gone out for dinner with our chiropractors. They became really good friends. They're a husband and wife couple as well. And we just asked the question, if you had the opportunity to study again, where would you go? And they said Palmer College in Davenport, Iowa, in the USA. And we said, well, why would you go there? And they said, it's because of the philosophy. And I went, philosophy? What does that mean? It goes, it's the reason why we do what we do. And I said, Okay. So the next day I drove out to La Trobe University where I'd studied psychology. I looked up Palmer College of Chiropractic and in those days, of course, you would probably remember that you couldn't just print one page of of a website. You had to print the whole, you know, the whole lot of it. So I printed off like 30 or 40 pages of this website and I took it out to the quadrangle at La Trobe University and I sat there reading this whole new definition of health because when I was studying physical education, Kim, no one could define what health was. Not one person. It was all about if you were taught tight and terrific, or if you were, you know, feeling good, eating right, and being happy. You know that, and and exercising. That's kind of was the broad definition of what we were given at at phys ed college. So no one could actually define it. But on this piece of paper, on this particular day, when I sat in the quadrangle. I saw this definition of health being about optimum physical, mental, and social well being and not necessarily the absence of disease or infirmity. And then I saw the nerve system and innate intelligence and universal intelligence. And then it said in the top right hand corner, click here for the doctor of chiropractic program. And then I just, I howled my eyes out. I cried and I cried and I cried because all of a sudden, this little girl from 1972 was sitting right beside me crying, going, this is it. This is the moment that we have been waiting for. This is the doctor that will change people's lives. Yes, you're not going to be a brain surgeon, but you're going to be working with the central nerve system and the peripheral nerve system, and you're going to change people's lives. So I, I got in the car, threw my tears, drove home. Uh, my husband and I, we had been together for five years. We just recently got married and I walked into the kitchen. I had this big water paper. I whacked it on the kitchen bench and I said, I'm moving to America. I'm going to study chiropractic. And he kind of looked at me quite blankly and I said, well, you can come with me. We can get divorced or we can have a long-term relationship, but we all know how they work out. And, uh, you know, Luckily for me, three months later we were both living in the states and we were both enrolled in chiropractic, and we haven't turned back. So uh, now, you know, every day of my life I get to have an impact on not only my children and what they're doing and what they're going through, but also, you know, the thousands of other people that we have connections with um, around the world and 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 help on on a regular basis. So. <sighs> And you do it so, so well. (laughs) There's so much in there. There is so
1: much juice and so much beautiful um, touch points that you created in that conversation. And just want to thank you wholeheartedly for following your heart and trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. So many people grow up through life and through no fault of their own, really, without any understanding because of what someone says or because of a teacher or an experience or a parent or a coach they grow up with a limiting belief that they're not good enough to do something. And so I just, I would love to know then at what point you said that you saw the doctor of chiropractic, that holding there, the philosophy, but at what point did you go, I can do this? Or at what point did you stop believing you weren't good enough to be a doctor? Do you recall that moment?
0: Uh no, I, I never stopped believing that I will be a doctor and change people's lives. I just didn't know that chiropractors were doctors. I didn't know that dentists were doctors. I didn't know that naturopaths were doctors. I just only ever thought that you would be a medical doctor, but that never made sense to me. And I, all of that really goes back with what you actually just said, Kim, to the when I was seven years of age. And, and it was an extraordinary moment in, in my life. And my my family and I will I don't tell this story often. I only tell one piece of it, but I'm happy to share the the other part of it. Myself and mum and dad and my sister, we were driving to my grandparent had had a farm at Bega. We we're driving to Bega. Dad was tired. He said, "We're going to stay the let's let's stop and stay the night." Well, we used to stay at this Coltex service station that had like the kind of the motel on the side, and uh, they had like a little petting zoo there. So usually it was our halfway stop anyway, but this particular day we decided to stay the night. So as young kids, my sister and I jumped out of the car and we went into the room and and like any kids, you you uh you know, you go and you explore everything in a new hotel room, right? So a motel room. So we're opening the drawers and looking in the bathroom and choosing which bed we want. And then my sister and I decided to go and get um some food find some food for my my sister and my mum decided to go and find some food for us. And I was helping my dad bring the luggage into the motel room. Well, I was in the motel room on my own. Dad was out getting some suitcases and I'd open a drawer that was by the desk and uh, there was a book in there. And it was a book that I hadn't seen before ever in our house. And I opened the book up and I was like, wow, this is a really odd book. It's got lines down the middle and it's got these numbers at the beginning of, of the paragraph And so I was just looking at it and absorbing it and wondering what it was, and my dad walked in with the suitcases, put the suitcases down by the wall, and with absolute knowingness, with absolute clarity, with absolute assurity in his voice, he walked over to me saying, Sarah, close the book and put it back in the drawer. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, really? And again, he said, close the book, put it back in the drawer. So I did as a good child, did what I was told, close the book, put it back in the drawer. And he knelt down in front of me, Kim, and he placed his hand on my heart. And he said to me, Sarah, you have all the answers inside of you. All you have to do is ask the question and trust your answer. And that, for me, changed my life. And, and, And that that those few words have helped steer me every step of the way throughout my life from raising children to moving halfway across the world to study with 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 nothing but you know some cash in our hands and everything else that we'd sold to be able to get there to navigating the Australian rowing team moving to Sydney studying psychology everything in my life I can pinpoint back to that those words that were said to me at the age of seven and so my journey has been about trust and now i spend a lot of my time when i'm working with people is just going back to that trust how do we undo the armor that we create around us in order to get back to that center place of of trust
1: you bring up an incredible point actually human beings are perfect they're born perfect they have this incredible intelligence that grows babies and turns us into adults we have this incredible mind we have the an ability to create whatever it is we truly want. The word trust is a massive word. And what I really would love to acknowledge your dad on there is that really is the truth. We all have the answers within us, but through life's experiences and inputs and teachings and other people's beliefs and their value systems and all of those things, in your humble opinion, at what point Have you noticed through the study of psychology and all of your work, trusting the innate intelligence of this beautiful thing we call the human body, at what point do we actually get to take a grip of what it is that we believe? Do you think there's a time in our life? Is it a a special moment? Uh, Do some people avoid it altogether? What have you noticed about the human race that allows us to grow into that true trust of each of us having the answers?
0: I think it goes back to questions. You know, my dad was a a, a very Socratic parent. It drove me insane. My mum taught me a lot about accountability. My dad taught me a lot about responsibility. And he, as a Socratic parent, would ask question after question after question, so much so that he wouldn't answer my questions. He'd just ask another question. So I think the evolution of the human journey is about asking questions. It's like, It's kind of like on an need to know basis is that when you start to ask the question about something, that's when your floodgates are open. And that's how you can start to um change your, you know, change your uh, I guess your beliefs, you can change your uh your thinking, change your life, change your behavior. Um, but for me it goes back to questions. That's how I've raised our kids as well. That's how I work with people is is consistently asking questions to help um to help them raise their own awareness of where they are in their life, but also to have them self-actualize what it is that they're actually doing in their life too. And I hope that answers
1: that. Very true. much,
0: very much. I when I studied
1: hypnotherapy, one of the things one of my teachers turned around and said is your job is not to hypnotize people, your job is to help unhypnotize them. Yeah. And you mentioned at the very beginning this the square box, this television, this this that so many people are glued to in this day and age. And with respect, I'm sure there's lots of really positive and wonderful things that come out of that. But we only have to have witnessed um, over the last three to five years how, though, that box can hypnotize the way we think. So can social media so do the logarithms and the way in which we navigate ourselves online. Mm. If you are saying then that it comes back to our own accountability and responsibility, asking questions, it's not just any questions, is it? It's actually asking quality questions. Mm. So rather than yes, no questions, it's really diving deep. Uh, from, from your perspective, being at university, going through um, a system and different systems, would, would you say then getting an education, to be really well-educated is to ask more questions, not think that there's just one way of thinking. Could you explain a little bit about your philosophy then around this thinking, around being able to ask quality questions, around understanding the intelligence of our body, our mind, this machine that we have, that we're so blessed to have. Is there a philosophy that Dr. Sarah Farrant has around the philosophy of thinking?
0: Uh Yes, <laughs> I um I I well back in the late 1990s we had um, some Amish midwives with uh, the birth of our first child, and these Amish midwives home educate, and we would meet their families, and one had uh, six boys, one had six girls, one had seven girls and three boys, and one had three and three. So a massive, massive collective of children all home-educating. And I was like, I'm fascinated with this. This looks really cool, this home education. And I'd met some other people along my journey of life that had been home-educated. But I think when when children are home-educated or when families are are home-educating, they're put in two different buckets, right? You're either ultra-religious or you're a hippie and you've got feral children and they're running around barefoot and you live in a caravan on some land somewhere, And that wasn't the case for us and it wasn't the case necessarily for these Amish midwives either. So I came across a guy called um, John Taylor Gatto who wrote Dumbing Us Down the Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education and it was a book that changed my life and not long after that in the 1990s and early 2000s I got to hear him speak when he came to Australia. And... uh, we were, we were home educating um, at that stage, our children, and he just completely confirmed for me a lot more about why we are home educating. So for me, education is which what we called inspired learning, um, and I still have that today for myself. I still call it inspired learning. I still learn from so many different people from all walks of life um, when I engage in conversations with them, be that someone I've met on the street or be that someone that I'm working with. So I always learn about myself. So inspired learning is something that we have done. And education for me is on an uh, an as as per need basis. So, um, just like I said before, when you ask the question, then your floodgates are open. And so, for raising children outside of the system, healthy children outside of the system, then I was always one that would, um. When the floodgates were open, that's when I would, you know, dive in with the information. It wasn't like today we're going to wake up and we're going to do maths and then we're going to do science and then we're going to do art as if our kids loved all of those subjects, and they didn't, you know. So the inspired learning part of it was my job as a parent was to go, okay, what are you doing in your life? Is to be the observer of the child and go, okay, my job in my life as a parent this is what I saw my role as, is to guide you is to guide you through your inspirations and to ask you those questions that will either help un- unravel another door to be opened in your mind of something that you love or to close that down because that's not what you love. And so that's the way we've I've always thought about, you know, education. And and the reason uh, you know, another reason for us home educating is because I came across a A quote, one of my favorite quotes, actually, um, and I use it all the time, Um, is a quote by the Buddhist, which says this, we will teach them the illusion until they're ready for the truth. And I thought, I don't want my kids living in an illusion. I don't want my kids in an indoctrinated system. You know, my dad used to call the TV the idiot box. And he was right, you know, because you watch it long enough, you become an idiot. <laughs> and and uh, so we, you know, raised our kids without TV. I mean, they watch it now, they're on social media, but they're, you know, 21, 18 and, and 16 now. And, you know, there's a bit lot more decision-making that they do for themselves. But when they were younger, certainly we didn't have any of that in in the house because I didn't want, um, our you know, our kids being influenced by that. I wanted them to know first and foremost in themselves Who they are and um, be confident um, within that. Actually, I asked Rui the other night. Kim, um, he was he was at home and he was the only one of the kids who were at home. We were having dinner, and I said to him, "What is it that you loved about home education?" And he said, "Mum, I just got to be me. He got to learn about him, and he got to be him." And, uh, you know, that was a beautiful thing for for me to hear is that he got to be him, he got to have that confidence where he would um, be, you know, okay with himself, be comfortable with himself. And I'm sure the other two would say something similar if I asked them that question as well.
1: It's a pretty powerful thing, and I think, as all parents, that's what we want our children to grow up with: a healthy perspective and a curious mind, an inquisitive mindset, and to realise that the more we know, perhaps the more we don't know. Um, oh or- uh,
0: yeah, to- yeah, absolutely. That whole history mystery—you know, we live in our history, and then as we go, I always say it's on the border of chaos is where we actually get the greatest change. So if you look at make a circle and you put history in the middle, on the outside of that is. Sorry, if you put history in the middle, and on the outside of that is the mystery, and uh, you know on the border of that circle, that's where chaos exists. And in that chaos, there is absolutely divine perfection. Everything, you know, the positive and negative in everything. But if we see our life for what it is, then we're able to evolve, expand that circle, so that mystery does end up becoming our our history, and that's how we grow, and that's how we um, that's how we how we develop but if I just if I just go back to that quote for a minute that I said we'll teach them the illusion until they're ready for the truth because when I first came across that quote which is such a powerful quote and so pertinent for the the world in which we live in at the moment it begged the next question right because I'm a question asker so the next question logical question for me well well what is an illusion and when I went digging I I I came to the inclusion that that the definition of illusion is a state of being intellectually deceived and then the next question from that is like, well, how are we deceived? And the the way in which we're deceived is by finding the easiest way to look at something. And then you've got to say, well, what's the easiest way to look at something? And then that's when you come to indoctrinated systems. And the indoctrinated system will keep you boxed in in terms of your thought process. And that doesn't matter whether it's in education, whether it's in finances whether it's in health that I see all the time, whether it's in social constructs, whether it's in the physical body, doesn't matter what it's in, those illusions are all there in order for you to not critically think so you don't get out of line, let's say. Um, and I think it's a really interesting uh it's an interesting way to look at, you know, how we are so easily deceived. And 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 the way in which we're taught things is not just through um uh, the social media channels or the TV, but it but it actually is a mother, a father, a teacher, a preacher, a caregiver, TV, print media, radio, um, and now social media. You know, that's nine to ten influences that we have on a child um, or on a person that is indoctrinating people into systems, into um, into a, towing the line um, to make sure that you, you know, follow what everybody else is is doing. And uh, I I was always of the uh, belief, Kim, that I wanted to break that for my kids. I wanted to stop that process that you, I wanted to teach you how to think for yourself and to critically think and to ask questions. Um, so part of staying out of indoctrinated systems has always been a big thing for me.
1: Well, I guess, too, for many of us, that indoctrination is a safe place. People feel they've got boundaries. They've got these these limitations on where they are. And for a lot of people, that feels safe. But the reality is, Sarah, we're, if we all thought the same and we all did the same, it would be a very boring place. Yet we've seen over the last few years, those who thought differently then almost got, you know, if it was in the old days, maybe stoned to death or um, were made to feel they weren't clever. What I noticed over the last few years was that very highly educated, incredible people were made to look sound or feel stupid. What is your thoughts then? How have you assessed without, I guess, any big heavy judgment or whatever it is, what it is? But when you look over the last three to five years and what actually occurred here, how would you give your summary as to what happened to the human experience over the last 3 to 5 years
0: well there's a lot to unpack there so uh, i would have to go back generations it wouldn't take me back 3 or 5 years so if i go back to well let's look let's look at education so when a child is born brought into the world at now at the age of four in australia um they can start being part institutionalized okay so you can go to daycare where where it is the beginning of the institutionalization and as a result of that you will stay in that institution until you get to around the age of 17 or 18 16 17 18 and then from the age of 17 or 18 it's so the pathway shows you is that you can only go and get a good job in X, Y and Z. And granted there are certain professions where you have to go and get trained. I get that. but for the majority of education, you can actually leave leave in high school and go and get go and get a good job and work you work your way up somewhere. But so the pathway says is that you have to then go into tertiary education where you'll be for at least another, well, let's say on average four, four years, four to five years. So now we're in the system for up to, you know, we're looking up to 20, you know, 20, 21, 22 years. And that is enough in reclassification of a generation. So now we've hijacked the mind of a generation. And then if you go and do further study after that, well, you're staying institutionalized for you know a hell of a lot longer after that maybe another three years so then you could go to like 24 years that you've been institutionalized for and what I've noticed is that the more institutionalized you are in other words inverted commas the so-called smarter that you are in the you know the education that you've had um the complete opposite of choices that have been made. Whereas I would have thought that those people would have been more critical thinkers and asked more questions, but they didn't. In those last three to five years, it's pretty much they've towed the line. And it's the people that have actually gone out of school. And what we would, what we would, what we would call, I guess Kim, blue collar and white collar workers, like the blue-collar workers have been more the people that have questioned and critically think. And I think that's because they've been less institutionalized than than traditional white collar workers interesting,
1: just yeah it's an interesting point isn't it i mean what i love about the word and you mentioned it before about the illusion um, until we seek the truth one of your books the health illusion is that where the philosophy behind that thinking was like what is the illusion of health can you explain that to us
0: well, illusion. I'm a word nerd, so I, and I love etymology. So when you look at the word illusion, it's the shon you. So the shon is condition, and if you do it backwards, it's a condition of keeping you ill, and and it is, isn't it? You know, like I just said, you know, an illusion is intellectually deceived. Easiest way, indoctrinated systems, and they're going to keep us in inverted commas, ill if we continue to tow that line and stay in those lanes, um, but. The health illusion is this understanding that you need to go to someone to get something to take something away as if whatever it is that your body has created, not caught but created, um, is not meant to be there. Now, our body is more intricately designed than a Formula 1 car and yet we spend more money on going to the gyms and our cars and and um, clothing, <laughs> hair, you know, you name it, everything else, but we spend very little on our on our body and understanding how it functions. So back in 2010, uh, we had a nanny, and you might recall this um, conversation, Kim, or heard, it, heard me say it somewhere, but um, we had a nanny that was in our employ when the kids were young, and she had called child services on us, or SIFs, and or Child Family and Youth Services, and she had done so because she thought our children had temperatures. And that I was doing nothing about it. And our model of care is has always been about keeping our kids out of the system. So our kids were all home birth; the third of which was a breech birth. Um, they have all been given organic food for the whole of their lifetime. In fact, we started eating organic food ourselves back in the early nineteen nineties. And they have not been to school, so they're not well. They not have haven't had the education that others have had. And they have never ever had a medication and and they haven't been to a medical doctor. So they've not had a medication, and that is over the counter prescribed or scheduled, scheduled being vaccines. And they're now 21, 18, and 16, and they are still in that path. So when she took the children's temperatures and then she told me what they were, I was like, Our kids don't have temper I could look at them and go, Our kids do not have temperatures. So And I don't know if if you're the same with your kids, Kim. Like I always say to parents, you know, a a mother 98% of the time is the one that will make the health decisions in the household. And uh, you know your children better than anybody. In other words, if you and I were at a a barbecue and Taylor's up a tree and and she's really young and I'm like, oh, my gosh, is Taylor going to fall? And I'm like, Kim, Taylor's up a tree and you just take one look and go, oh, no, she's fine. Whereas I'm panicking, like, oh no, she doesn't look fine. But you know your kids better than anyone. That's why you can do it in a split second. So here I was in our lounge room looking at my kids, going, My kids don't have temperatures. They are absolutely fine. She left. Sis called us and said, You are on a uh, you're basically on a child abuser list for denying the child a child the right to medical treatment. And I was like flabbergasted. So we rang the local uh uh uh, health center um, on Wahiki Island, and the lady that was running it was actually a practice member of ours. She was getting chiropractic care. And so I just said, You know, who's your most sympathetic uh, medical doctor? I need to book an appointment. I want to have their temperatures taken. And it was more so that I could prove to myself that I do know my kids better than anyone and my kids don't have temperatures. But also, Sith said the only way you're going to get off the list is if a medical doctor, not us, we couldn't, like I could quite easily take a temperature. Um, but uh, you have to go to this person, you have to go to a medical doctor to get uh, their temperatures taken so he can get you off the list. Anyway, so we went and had the appointment, um, took the temperatures. All of the kids' temperatures were normal. And so we left there. It took another eight, eight weeks to close the case, and it was one of the most harrowing times in my life where your rights to your children are taken away, even though they're living with you, but no one will reply to your emails or phone calls. They just won't to talk to you. So it was, you know, it was a horrendous time to go through. So the, the, I guess for me, in terms of my own self-preservation during that time was to write. And I made it my mission in 2010 to organise the world's health information into bite-sized pieces so people could understand it. And so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And during that time, it became really clear to me how we have three health approaches. Now, we have hundreds of health professions, but we have three health approaches, where traditionally, prior to 2010 and me writing, we only really had two. And I started with what I knew to be true, which was this allopathic health approach. And for me, being raised by parents who are very staunch allopathic, Um, parents or medical parents and there was medical doctors on my father's side my uncle was our local medical doctor Um, and I started with that word allopathic and I wanted to know what it meant so again I went to my etymology dictionary and pathic actually means pardon me remaining passive so once I saw that allopathic means Pathic actually means remaining passive. To me, that was like a bingo moment. And then I started writing everything about that system. And I did my own research of what I looked at from clothing to practices to philosophies, et cetera. But essentially, with the allopathic approach, the remaining passive, you go to someone to get something, to take something away as if that person is more intellectually knowledgeable about your body than what you are. And that's where we've started to lose it. We've lost this trust in ourselves. We've lost this trust in our innate intelligence. So if that particular day you wake up as if you are lucky or unlucky because things happen randomly by chance, you just got the cold. You didn't create it, you just got the cold. And so you go to this person, this medical doctor for a treatment where you surrender your responsibility. So, Being able to have that medical doctor write you a prescription, write you a treatment, you surrender any sense of responsibility to that person. Like what my mum did when she took me up to Uncle Richard one time at the age of 10 and he asked me a few questions to which I said, yes, no, maybe sometimes not really. And then he wrote a prescription from that and we were out the door for more amoxicillin. And then with that treatment that we were given, because mum went to um, the local pharmacy who are other good family friends to get the prescription for fulfilled and came away with that treatment and then came home. And she said to me, these 10 famous words, and I'm sure they've been said in many a household around the world. She popped the pill, got the glass of water, slid it across the kitchen bench and said, there you go, darling, this will make you feel better. And When I started looking more closely at the word treatment, treat means to deal with and meant means mind. So all you're doing is providing an illusion that something is not there anymore because all you're doing is dealing with the mind. You're just stopping those neurological pathways between the mind and the body and back again, creating that illusion that it's not there anymore. And so we have this, this passive role with this treatment that we've been given, with this doctor that we go and see, and everything is driven by fear-type responses. That, you know, what if this gets worse? What if I don't take this? What if I do nothing? And when we look at the hierarchy, you can understand why, because when we look at the hierarchy of the body, We go from systems to organs to tissues to cells to organelles to molecules to atoms in an allopathic approach to health. Atom is the smallest component. Can't break it down any further. We are just these cogs and wheels that are all put together like a machine. Therefore, I can create a a Panadol, a tablet that will take a headache away because I know the neural pathway and it's just going to hit that. But it doesn't just hit that, does it? It actually hits lots of... Um, other areas of the body so I so when I was writing in 2010 that was the first one I started with that's what, which I knew to be true that allopathic health approach but at the age of 10 when my mum had popped me in the car and taken me to Uncle Richard and then we went to the family medical doctors and she came back and she said there you go darling so make you feel better I went back to what I shared before at the age of seven that my dad had taught me and my dad had said um, you know, you have all the answers inside of you. Just ask the question, trust your answer. And so I was sitting in the car waiting for mum to come out of the pharmacy and I asked the question, what do I want to do? Because I had said to mum, he's just going to write more Amoxicillin." That's how frequently we're up there. I knew that at the age of 10. And the answer that came back to me was just rest. So when we got home and mum slid the tablet and the glass of water across the kitchen bench to me, I just said, no, thank you with absolute certainty and assurity in my my voice and knowing in myself. And I said, I'm just going to go and rest. Now, chiropractic was not in my life then. Um, you know, naturopathy wasn't there. Not, not, there was no alternative or instead of, there wasn't anything else. I just was going to, I was just backing myself from what my dad had taught me and I was just going to go and rest. And at the same time, probably only a, a few months after that, a new girl started at school. And her mum was a nurse. And I used to go, I made fast friends with her. I'd ride to her house almost every night after school because I loved her mum. And her mum was a nurse, but she was a nurse of a different kind. She had all these things that rattled in the fridge. And whilst they didn't look like our medications that rattled in our fridge, they were all these vitamins, like vitamin C and vitamin B. And I would ask all of these questions. So that was the next area that I started to ride on was this alternative approach to health. And so the first thing I looked at was, well, what does native mean? You know, what is alternative? What's native, what I actually mean? And when I ask people that around the world, when I'm speaking, most people say, "Oh, it means organic or it means of the earth," but it actually doesn't. It actually means offering a choice. So instead of allopathic receiving an aspirin in the alternative approach, you might get willow bark. However, the alternative and the allopathic are so closely aligned. You're still going to someone to get something, to take it away. There's still a treatment that is provided for you. But instead of drugs and surgery, you're getting natural remedies and it's still fear-based and the atom is still the smallest component. And it starts to differentiate into that alternative approach by looking at three things. They start to acknowledge that there is an inner intelligence, suggestions are made to you rather than a diagnosis, and then... You are given time to decide, whereas in the allopathic approach, it's like they need an immediate answer as to whether you want that treatment or they're calling you the next day to find out what it is. Now, both of these approaches, allopathic and alternative, actually have health looking at this how-you-feel approach, right? And, and, and when you look at the word feel, the first three letters spell fee, and there certainly is a price you pay when you approach health by how you feel and it's not only the plethora of medications you could end up on, it could actually be your life. So then in my, my late 20s, so from the age of around 10, I stopped asking, I stopped telling my mum and dad of any kind of health expression, which is what I call it, or other words, sickness that I had created. And I started to look at, you know, spend a lot more time with, with my friend's family. And then I started to, as I got older into my late teens, found um, a naturopath and we used to fly to Sydney and we'd get our brew and we'd come back. So I was still going to get something to take something away, but it just wasn't harsh drugs. And that was into my early 20s. And then I started writing about this third health approach because there were a whole lot of points, Kim, in the allopathic and the alternative that just didn't make sense. It, it, it just it wasn't providing... Um, uh any opportunity for me to to put um these other points into either of those two health approaches so i wanted something that would start with a so that that people could see the system and i came up with the word alternates or alternate so we had allopathic remaining passive alternative offering a choice and then alternate where nate means inborn And this has a whole nother journey and a whole nother level of understanding. When we look at the hierarchy of the body of the alternate um, approach to health, you go from systems to organs, to tissues, to cells, to organelles, to molecules, to atoms, to subatomic particles, to vibrations, to energy and light. And when you break down light, you get a positive and you get a negative charge. And when those are aligned and those are joined, that's when you have health. Because in the true definition of the word health, which remember I was saying to you earlier, no one could define what health was until I got to chiropractic college where it's you know the optimum physical, mental and social well-being and not necessarily the absence of disease or infirmity. But if you look at the root meaning of the word health, health actually means whole And in order to be whole, you have to have the positive and the negative. It's just like a magnet. If I said to you, cut off the positive side, you can't do it. So there is always positive in negative and negative within positive. And this alternate understanding of health embraces that that we are whole and that we have this ability to create our health and we have Um, or we receive what's called an adjustment. So an adjustment, when you break down that word, add means move to, just means centre, and meant means mind. We move the mind back to centre, back into balance. So this positive and negative charge are not polarised from each other. They are once again aligned. And there is a tremendous amount of acknowledgement that we have an innate intelligence within us that governs us, that runs our body every nanosecond of our physical existence. And uh, the essence of health, when you look at the alternative approach to health, is that it comes from a functional position. And the first three letters of function spell fun. And life is a Hell of a lot more fun when you're coming from a functional perspective and an adjustment um, than what you do when you come from a feeling state and and being lucky and having a treatment. Oh,
1: It's just absolute magic and so powerful. Uh, something that sparked my curiosity in that conversation is just even when I was a young mum some 20 years ago, one of the philosophies that we grew up with was if you got a cold, you treated it with honey and lemon or chicken soup. That kind of, that's how I grew up. Mm. And then it was like, if there was something like someone had chicken pox, we actually had chicken pox parties where we'd take the kids to go and get chickenpox so that we could help build their immunity and do it while they were young. Yet today, it's almost like there's masks, there's medications, there's this fear of being or well, I guess what you call, I love it, a fear of health expressions. And yet, if we could just understand that the body's expressions through those times of challenge is actually the body's own defense mechanisms, it's building resistance, it's building uh, resilience. Is there something that concerns you that this day and age we have gone so um, allopathic that we've actually lost touch with the intelligence of this beautiful thing we call a body.
0: Yeah, you know, we certainly, children are, uh, you know, mollycoddled and wrapped in cotton wool, you know, much like my mum did when, you know, when she was, I was in the kitchen with her that day and she wrapped me up in the blanket and popped me in the car and whisked me up to Uncle Richard, you know, that was the day that I just shared with you that, so it's, it's, Look, you can't create health by avoiding disease. It's not going to happen. Health does not exist on a linear line. It's this oscillating movement from left to right and up and down all the time, every nanosecond of your existence. You cannot get something. Every single thing that exists outside in the universe exists inside of us. And we perceptually have the opportunity to switch it on or switch it off. So when you have a chicken pox party, it's not that you're going to, you're not catching anything, you're not getting anything, but all of these kids are there perceptually seeing that what are all these kids with these dots on? What are they doing? So we create through our own perceptual understanding the opportunity to create the same thing. So our physiology changes in order for us to have that experience. When I'm working with parents, we just had a mum just the other day actually and she was calling us because her two-year-old had created a, what we call a health expression. I should say that I coined that term back in the early 2000s because I wanted to be congruent with our language and how we were raising our kids and I didn't want our kids to hear the word sickness or hear the word pain because I never, ever wanted them to think that their body got it wrong. Your body always gets it right regardless of what you create in your life. and. um one of the things that I that I share with the parents, like I shared with this mum the other day, is that when we create health expressions, regardless of how old you are, because there's no discrimination with health ex- expressions, we get them regardless. Sorry, we create them regardless, and as a result of that um, creation, when it when we allow something to take its natural path especially when children are really young so in that zero to seven age group they're in their physical body that's when we do the most growing that's when we create the most things in order to constantly keep hitting our system um, to create the evolution in our in our life as the human body and if you allow some allow a child to go through something naturally then I always say to them, wait seven to fourteen days because that's the natural that's the natural build of immunity, seven to fourteen days. But at that fourteen day mark, and and actually it's usually around day ten um, where kids will change. And if you are the true observer of your parent, you will see them change before your eyes. Now, they can have changes through dexterity. They can have changes in the food that they choose. They can change um, in walking. They can change in uh, food choice. They can change in so many things if we're allowed to, if, if, if you have the strength, if you have the trust to allow your child to move through that. You know, the Lancet Journal said that one of the challenges of fevers Is only a result of a predisposed neurological challenge so in other words if you have young kids make sure that you're taking them to a chiropractor for neurological integrity because that's what chiropractors do we work with the nerve system so if you have if you provide a treatment for that fever for that child I don't know why I'm choosing fevers but it just came out of my head so if you have a house that's burning and the fire brigade race with alarms blaring to your house and they jump out of the out of the um, car and they race over to your house and they cut the alarm and then they jump back into their car and they race off, but your house is left burning. That's essentially what we're doing with a fever. So there's no then communication pathway to the body to say, hey, this is going on when we suppress and uh, um, when we suppress a um, a fever, let's say. So the more that we can allow nature and as parents be the observer of our children, then um, then uh, you know the greater the growth, the more robust the body. The um, the more connected they are with their own system and their own innate um, intelligence. You know, there was three three things, I guess, that were important to us, Kim, when we were raising um, the kids. And, and it's kind of under our catch-cry now that we have on our website, which is Move, Eat, Think. And we always wanted our kids to be active and engaged in it, with their body doing things in their life. We wanted to make sure that they had organic food to eat And we wanted to make sure that they were having fantastic conversations. But a big part of all of those, I guess the umbrella that sits over all three of those was chiropractic or is chiropractic because it still is today. And our kids have been adjusted since they were minutes old. And they were, they have been adjusted every Friday morning um, for the whole of their existence. Sometimes we adjust them twice a week, three times a week. Sometimes it's once a week, Um, but, but, that is a mainstay. So overarching all of that is how we function. that's the move part. Obviously the chemical part making sure that we can function well. so the foods that we put into the body, which is another part of chiropractic, and then also the um, the uh, thinking part, which is our philosophy. How can we have this way of life philosophy infiltrated through the upbringing of our children so they get on, they move on to take that into their own families as well and their friendship groups.
1: Oh, so powerful. And I think there's so much fear these days, beautiful Sarah, that, and and I don't want to put this on any of us, particularly our listener, but we are kind of our own worst enemy. Parents are so busy trying to work. They haven't got time to have sick children or sick themselves. So they go to work or they teach, send their kids to school or daycare we're our own worst enemy, we want something, if we can pop a pill that's going to make us feel better in 30 minutes as opposed to allowing 10 days to let our body, if that's what people believe, um, it just seems that it's, you know, there's a lot of blame put on the allopathic system and yet, and maybe even the alternative system, but yet we, we are the ones demanding this. If we stopped buying into this or if we stopped buying the over-the-counter medications or if we stopped thinking we had to take something to take something away... Would that create such a mind shift that oh, I'm, I'm getting myself all wound up here because I'm almost thinking it's just going back to our grandfather's our forefathers and foremothers um, philosophy. They didn't have all of these choices. They did use herbs and medicines or broths or used soups and things like that to help us heal. We did rest. We did take the time. Mm. So is it is it that we're chasing our own tails here? Is it is it a change in our way of thinking or giving ourselves that time and grace to actually build resilience, to create the foundation, the neurological systems that can handle whatever is happening around us? How do we change this?
0: Well, I think it's changing in itself, actually, at the moment with the system that's imploding on itself. And for 20 odd years, I've spoken from the stage saying that the allopathic approach to health is actually imploding. And I think no more Uh, real is that then right now, as we see the whole system imploding on itself, but when you've got, you know, big corporations and big pharma and um, uh, um, lobbying groups involved at a political level to squash other uh, professions that might be doing great things like chiropractic, then, then you have a problem on your hands um, and the system has to implode to have the people wake up to see that actually there are other ways to look at health and um, and there can't be a media um, monopolisation which keeps people in that um, disempowered state over their, over their bodies. So I guess I have this saying, any area in your life where you feel disempowered, someone will overpower you. And if we can continue to empower the people to understand health understand where health comes from understand that you you can break those traditions that you usually grew that you grew up with and and create change then then you will have the ability to be empowered in your life when it comes to doesn't matter if it's health or finances or or uh, the physical body—it doesn't matter. It can be anything. But the more empowered you are, then um, the less disempowered you will be when you are um, uh, when you are approaching um, your health. Do you know, on average, Kim, the the individual will have fourteen thousand medications in their lifetime. 14,000. Now, that does not include over-the-counter medications. If you add over-the-counter medications to that, then you're looking at 44,000 medications that one person will have in their lifetime. That is a massive, massive amount of drugs that is going into the human body. And if we can arrest that by educating parents that this is not the life that you want for your child, then um, I think that also can form part of the... You know, empowering somebody to go out. Actually, I don't want that path for my. I don't want my child to have forty four thousand medications. Someone's having all of ours because we don't have any. You know, in a we don't even have a medicine cupboard. We have toilet rolls. You know, you know what I mean. Like so, so uh, um, yeah.
1: Can I ask you this then? Mm. This this really comes back to dollars, money, and I've had many yeah. people say to me things like. I I would love to, you know, be more politically minded or stand up for myself and a very good friend of both of ours, Cindy O'Meara, Mm. has often said, you know, you don't have to be a loud, aggressive advocate for change or whatever. We each have the power by where we spend our dollar. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things she brings it back to is where do you choose to spend your dollar? Is it with the big corporations or is it with your local farmer's markets? Is -hmm. it to choose over-the-counter medications or are you wanting to learn more about this beautiful thing called our body? I interviewed a beautiful soul also, uh, Alex Stewart, who is the low-tops life woman. And she has a degree in political science. And she felt that one of the biggest things that has gone away from being a democratic lifestyle into a, a more aristocratic is that money, big money came into government or into politics. And when you have big money driving political agendas, taking away our democratic choice right there and then. And so what's your suggestion to this beautiful listener who's going, I do want to make a change. I do want to ask more questions. Is, is it about where you spend your money or have you got something more than that?
0: Um, look, I always have the same pay now, or pay later. And if you pay now, then you'll pay for good organic food and you'll pay for regular chiropractic care. Um, And at the end of your life, you won't be paying that much because you've paid for that up front. And you're right with with, you know, the big you know, lobby groups. And, you know, Rockefeller, who started the oil company, Standard Oil, back in the 1850s. And then in the 1860s, he went to um, multiple sources of income. So he opened refineries and he made the paraffin wax and the lubricants and paints. And then he got so much money, he decided to lobby the US media. And, you know, he formed a monopoly there. And then he realised that drugs, you know, could be made with petroleum, so he painted drugs. And the biggest thing that he did was he lobbied Congress to make sure that natural medicine was seen as unscientific and, and crackery. I never can never say that word right. Cr- cr- cracker, cracker. I don't I can't <laughs> I can't wrong word talking crackery. Crackery. You know, we're all crackpots, you know, like doing anything to do with natural, unsi- you know, anything that's, you know, natural is it, uh, it seen to be unscientific and, you know, you're all crackpots if you do it. So major, major money got poured into that within the U.S. Now, we're not that far behind, the. you know, a couple of years probably behind the U.S., maybe even a year now behind the U.S. and what's happening over there. But you can see how that, just starting in the U.S., has had a huge big you know influence on how drugs are seen around the world they had so much money that they would shut down other health professions that were doing a great job at keeping people out of the system because being out of the system isn't going to make them any money but chiropractic looking at the neurological you know connections of the body that you know that you are a self-healing self-regulating self-regenerating and self-maintaining organism that is constantly adapting to your environment now that you know, sings to, you know, millions and millions of people around the world that they would much prefer to be paying for regular chiropractic care um, to make sure their body is well functioning and clear of interference and eating organic food and having great conversations with their With their families and that is a much healthier recipe than going to someone to get something to take away so you know at the end of your life when you've swallowed 44,000 medications you're just walking around rattling or you can barely move.
1: Oh and it seems to be a system or people think it's a natural artifact of growing older that it's an expected pathway the older you get the more medications you go on and the more medications there's more medications to counteract the nausea or the pains or the sickness or whatever comes with those medications. It's it's almost like doctors these days, and I say this as a generalized statement, are trained pharmacists rather than biologists. It's like we've lost touch with what actually makes up this beautiful thing, as I keep referring to, as the human body. Mm. I know that you and I could talk forever and I've had the absolute <laughs> <laughs> privilege yeah. of being with you there on Waiheke Island, but we didn't quite link how you went from being in Australia to then living on a beautiful island community there in New Zealand, one of my favourite parts of the world, Waiheke. Perhaps as we start to round this up, and I hope out of today's podcast, our beautiful listeners had the opportunity to really start to assess their own critical thinking here and become more curious and interested in these three philosophies. But as you talk about yourself and, and then the ending up in New Zealand, is there a difference with living there in a beautiful island of Waiheke as opposed to living in a big city like Sydney? And can you explain to us where you are and how people can find you?
0: Well, how did we get to Waiheke? Well, we were, it was part of our living list, really. And you know, i most people have a, you know, bucket list, but I always think yeah, I don't want to get to the end of the list and kick the bucket. I want to have a living list. So we have a living list and part of, on on that living list was living on an island. What would that look like for us? What would that be like? What would our community be? Um, Would we want for anything? Uh, So we went. we were looking at moving from the Sunshine Coast. It was really, really hot. And uh, Randall, who's built like a rugby player, um, found it extremely hot for him. So we just wanted to have four seasons for the rhythms of our body. And so we were looking at going back to the States where we had lived for a period of time we were looking at China, ironically. And then we looked at New Zealand, we thought, let's go to New Zealand, it's the closest place um, that we can tick off the box. So we went to New Zealand, we went to Tauranga, I'd done my research, Tauranga was um, one of the fastest growing areas. And we thought, okay, we'll go there, we went there, we actually didn't like it, we kept comparing our beaches to what they have there. Um, Mind you, we did go there on New Year's. So everyone was there. right? So it was a real mix of um people we just didn't like the feel of it we went to this uh um we we're staying in this accommodation place that had a you know what to do when you're in New Zealand and it had this book and it had Waiheke in it and we said oh well, let's hedge our chances and go and uh have a look at Waiheke anyway we were able to get some accommodation there's a story with that but I won't go there we were able to get some accommodation we went to Waiheke and we did, oh, we stayed there two nights. Um, we stayed at Palm Beach, right on the beach there, which was lovely. And we got our big wads of paper. And we always do, um, when we're doing any big moves in our life, do like a pros and cons lift. Like what's the benefits of staying in Queensland and what's the what's the um, pros of got it going. And the same with moving to Waiheke, the pros and the cons. And then we could see it for what it is. Anyway, we made the decision that, yes, we will move. And then within two and a half months, um, we'd uh, packed everything up and we were living on, on Waiheke. And one of the reasons why we were attracted to Waiheke was one, because of, we wanted to home educate the kids and we wanted the kids to be able to tap into a community where there were people willing to <clears throat> give of their time. So there was lots of people there that were retired businessmen that do have done extraordinary things um, for New Zealand that we could call up or that there were other practice members or that we could call them up or we could go and do woodworking, we could build a boat, you know, we could do lots of things within the community. The second thing was that the kids were able then to um, uh, engage in activities. So we could go from swimming lessons straight to judo, whereas in a city you couldn't do that. You couldn't go to swimming lessons and go to judo unless it was really, really close (laughs) to where like a couple of blocks in a city environment. But on Waiheke we could do that and sometimes we could do three activities in one night. So, it afforded us this opportunity to, to raise kids in a civilized way. And one of the questions that I got asked all the time when I was home educating is, um, What do you do for socialization? And I didn't want, uh, or this was my standard reply I don't want my kids socialized. And people would look and go, Why? And I said, Because socialization is the adoption of um, different personas in order to fit into the environment in which you are I said I want my kids civilized and civilization or civilized is um, adopting the cultures and traditions of the community in which you live so for me Waiheke gave us that civilized approach to life and what we wanted to um, be able to achieve and also you know we opened our own practice there really wasn't there was, I think there was one or two other chiropractors at the time on the island when we went there and we had a mission to make sure that everyone on the island was adjusted. So we're, you know, ticking away at that goal.
1: Oh, it's so beautiful. And if you ever have the opportunity, most people or a lot of people go to Waiheke, not only for the beaches like Palm Beach, but also the amount of incredible fooderies and wineries and mm-hmm. eclectic art <laughs> shops and amazing, beautiful artists that do retire or live or reside over there. It is one of the most magical parts of New Zealand, in my humble opinion. Um, but I, I'm really curious as we come to the close here. You're such an intelligent, thought provoking, um, inquisitive soul, and someone who also has huge heart and passion for the greater good of all. You know, everything you've talked about today, Sarah, is about self responsibility, self actualization, self awareness, all of these beautiful things. And the one thing I'd love you or be interested in is to know what is your definition then of self-love.
0: <laughs> that's a really good, that's a really good question. Well, it would be you know how we spoke about, you know, going through that hierarchy in the body all the way down to energy, light, and then positive and negative. So I would have to say where the polar opposites of myself can be in harmony.
1: Polar opposites of self can be in harmony. Yeah, I had the privilege of being in India many years ago and did some beautiful teachings in a beautiful Dharma Shala, and uh, His Holiness actually said when I asked why do humans have to go through struggle, challenge, or change, and he said, "My darling, you cannot have uh, light without dark. You can't mm-hmm. have height without low. You can't have." depth without shallow like each you cannot have one without the other Mm -hmm. and that was my first realization many years ago that actually we need both to live a fulfilled life Mm -hmm. and I think it gave me permission to actually experience all realms just like you said then to experience all seasons we are rhythmical creatures we do have this dynamicism that requires all extremes and all Uh, parts to be one and i just want to thank you not only that beautiful book the health illusion but also the best-selling book of yours the vital truth and if i could say to the listener please go and follow beautiful dr sarah look up these books download them uh, buy them uh, make sure that you read them to give yourself this beautiful perspective particularly if this is something new to you if people did want to follow you, book with you, um, be a part of your world and, and Randall's, how could we find you? What's the best website and social media platforms?
0: Uh, the best website would be Vital, uh, V-I-T-A-L, and then dash, not an underscore but a dash, wellbeing, one word. Uh, dot com, so vital wellbeing.com, and then our social media would be Facebook and Instagram, and that would just be at one vital wellbeing one word.
1: Perfect. And I'll make sure I put all of that into the show notes. Um, you know there's a few other questions I'd love to ask you, but just just before I come to the closing, is there anything or anyone that has inspired you so much? You mentioned your dad and we know about your mum with the accountability and responsibility and I'm sure all the lessons you've learned. But is there one person or one philosophy or one thing throughout your whole life that I get chiropractic is that too? Is there anyone in particular that has lit your soul in such a way that has you critically think and expand your own way of thinking still to this day?
0: Um. I would say it was when we first went to <clears throat> chiropractic college. There was a lady there called Maxine McMullen, and I sat in the first philosophy class, and that—that's what blew me away. That's when I walked out to Randall in the sky, what's called the Skywalk at Palmer College, and I sat there and I said, and I was actually really angry, Kim. I was really, I was mad and I was frustrated, and I said everything that we have been taught about health is a lie. And she was instrumental in, um, I guess, breaking that very first illusion for me when it came to what is health and where does it come from. And I, get, I she's passed away now, but, I, you know, I don't think a day goes past without me going, wow, and just r- remembering that very first time I heard something different and how raw I felt, how vulnerable I felt, how... Um, angry and frustrated and yet elated and excited you know again going back to that positive and negative everything was in that border of chaos that I sat in as as um, you know I guess the mystery became part of my history
1: Mm -hmm. and the rest they say is history
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) I, I actually
1: yeah Yeah, I've also heard many beautiful trailblazers like yourself, you know, our emotions drive our behaviours and sometimes being really angry or really elated can can drive certain behaviours. So Mm -hmm. I would love to add to that. Don't be afraid of being angry with how you've been brought up or how Mm -hmm. you've been led to believe. Don't be afraid of thinking differently. And don't be afraid to challenge even that thinking, because mm. beyond the realm of, of all thinking is potentiality and possibility. And I, I love your whole realm of don't ever think we know it all kind of thing. There is always more to question. And mm. I've just so loved today. And I, I really love being in your presence. I've had the privilege of adjustments. Your children are mind-blowingly amazing. And you've had a massive part to play in the way I've raised my children. Just one quick story after I read your book, The Health Illusion, we had been to India and we took the children there, Sarah, I don't know if I've told you this, but we came back with what everyone termed deli belly and everyone was sick and it was the middle of the night and Danny was throwing up and both ends and the mm-hmm. kids were in the other toilet both ends and they just go oh this is awful and I'm going oh my gosh this is such an amazing health expression <laughs> <laughs> our body amazing it's getting rid of these bugs and it's it's the body's best way to get it out and that one yep. of the best ways is to vomit and have diarrhea and yeah yep. I had oh, a yep. completely different viewpoint thanks to reading your book and the kids still to this day go on about how happy i seemed that they were having this health expression <laughs> <That's> <laughs> rather than story. rather than taking something to bog us up and stop us it was yeah. like the sooner we get this out the better and yeah. i think the other takeaway i've taken from you today is invest in your health and well-being today mm-hmm. pay up front otherwise somehow sickness may invest itself in you or you may find yourself paying in a different way and mm-hmm. i just want to I want you to know just how much of an impact you've had in my world, my family's world, and the ripple effect that you've had on so many beautiful people out there. I think Waiheke is very lucky to have you um, and Randall and those beautiful souls of yours. But in closing, my dear friend, I would love for you to share. I know you've shared a number of quotes, but you may even want to reiterate one that you've shared, but a favorite quote right now, and maybe your final message to the self-love podcast listener.
0: Well, I'd have to go back to my favorite quote, which is, We'll teach them the illusion until it's ready for the truth. And because it can, you know, when you really sit with that quote, then you can start to embrace, you know, where are all those illusions that you have been living? You know, you can ask those, ask yourself those deeper questions. And I guess my parting words for the listener would be trust. Trust that you have this incredible body that is working with you and designed to express health. And sometimes along the way, we create those neurological interferences by physical, chemical, or emotional means in all seven areas of our life to help nudge us along. So learn to listen to the whispers that your body gives you. So profound.
1: So incredibly beautiful. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of everyone listening to this. Thank you, beautiful Sarah Farron.
0: Thank you so much, Kim, for having me. It's been such a pleasure sharing with everyone and um, I wish them all the best on their health journey. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care.